Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And you know, over the years, we've done a lot <clears throat> with the Yes Magazine, talking to lots of folks who write for them. Uh, there's been a woman who's been writing for them for a year now. Uh, she is the associate editor for racial justice uh, for Yes Magazine, uh, Zenobia Jeffries, and joins us for the first time on this program. And Zenobia, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be on. Thank you for asking. So you've written a lot over this last year, um, and I've been reading some of the stuff you've been writing before that even in your other positions before. Um, but this last piece you wrote that I read, I think it's your most recent piece, Philando Castile's murder shows how the system fails everyone. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think the way, again, the subtext for this piece for me, the... Um, the frustration, the anger, the fed upness, if there's such a word, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It fuels this. I think you speak for millions of other people when you wrote this. I mean, that's how I was feeling when I wrote it. You know, when I sat down to write, I wasn't sure what would come up or out or if anything at all because I was so frustrated because it seems like. You know, in covering racial justice lately, that's kind of all we're talking about is these police killings and shootings and not guilty verdicts and, and just injustice. And um, so I, I was really overwhelmed, and I didn't know if I would even be able to say anything about it because the last thing um, that I wrote was, you know, well, not the last thing, but last year, right around the Philando Castile shooting, there was also another story, you know, just the same time. And and, and I did, it was just like, you know, when is it going to stop? So there was that frustration. There was that outrage. And, and I'm reading people's comments on social media, and I'm seeing this hashtag trend that the system has failed, continues to fail black people. And, and I just, in that moment, I felt like the burden is not on us only. You know, it's not just failing black people only. It's failing everybody. <laughs> you know, it's failing mm-hmm. white people, too. So, you know, yes, black people are being killed at a higher rate as far as, you know, the rate, to, or what is it, two and a half times to three times more um, the rate is, considering our um, we're only 13% of the population, although the numbers are higher for white people. I get that, but it's the, the black bodies you know, laying in the street, being shot by police, video after video. And it's just, you know, we shouldn't be the only ones to bear the burden of having to respond to that. And that's what I was feeling when I wrote that. I mean, because, I mean, we're all human beings. And I'm, you know, and when I wrote it, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure a lot of folks, even on my Facebook anyway, you know, people were responding, I am, we are, yes. So it wasn't that I didn't think white people were, and it wasn't saying you're not and you should be. I believe that, you know, many are, but it's as a collective, not individually. As a collective, black people are are tired, you know. Um, And so it was just that, you know, this is a a human issue. It's not just a black issue. Everybody should be upset about this. Absolutely. I mean, you you quote one of my favorite people of all time, Finn Lou Hamer. Mm-hmm. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. And and when you write to me, this is one this little piece in here that you wrote in the in the uh, in the piece. It just speaks to it to me. 
You wrote black, brown, white, whatever. We should not wait until our own sons bleed to death. We are all Valerie Castile. We all should be angry, angry that the system fails everyone and angry enough to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, does it feel sometimes to you like... Like we've reached a point, and I don't think this is a stopping point, but some kind of wall it feels like at the moment where those of us who are angry about this and saying, you know, we have to realize what our history is and how this got to this place, um, that not enough people are getting it at the moment. I felt like it was growing and growing, but all of a sudden I'm feeling like it stopped. Maybe maybe it's just my attitude this morning. (laughs) You know what I mean? different every day yeah right 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 it's different every day you wake up and you have hope and you're like yes you know we're coming you know together you see people responding on these social media platforms and you feel hopeful and then you know i'll see something else and i'm like oh god we're going back or you know and 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 in some in some ways we are right just like the you know one step forward two step back kind of dance but i think that in media it is our responsibility to have these counter narratives because we've been so inundated with this fear of the other and the current administration kind of perpetuates that fear of the other and i think you know, our greatest threat is not one another, it's our own government. (laughs) And so it's like saying these things to say, you know, hey, if we came together, you know, black people come together in their own communities, white people in their own communities, and then we come, you know, to help aid each other in each of our own communities. You know, we work together, We, we coalition build. Um, I mean, and I think that's important. So, you know, some days I feel hopeful, you know, and then some days, like, when I wrote that, it was out of kind of a a frustration and a disgust. But there was that hope in why I spoke to white people, because um, white power in this country is very real. I mean, (laughs) white people run this country. And so it was, hey, you know, Black and brown people, particularly right now in the administration that we have, are being ignored. You know, we're not being showed as if our lives matter. And so for those allies who we know, you know, just because of, you know, the complexion of your your skin that, you know, you matter. Like, use that to your advantage. Use that to all of our advantage, too. And that was the white people. It's like, okay, use your skin for the advantage of everyone else. Right. You know, um, so that was that, you know, it was a frustration, but it was also a hopefulness and recognizing that, you know, all of our voices should, should matter. But the truth is, you know, in many circles and many platforms and in many of our institutions, they don't. And so for those voices that are being listened to until, you know, people open their ears to everyone else it's okay use that use that voice you know in your communities you know when you serve on juries call your legislators go to your city councils even you know look at these people backgrounds the prosecutors you know who who will be in trying these cases 
you know, start to pay attention to those kind of things. They may not directly impact you, but they in, definitely indirectly impact you. And, you know, the, the I think that the, the points of what you write about here are so critically important. I mean, you're, you're a young woman who grew up, you grew up in Detroit, right? Yes. So, and so you've seen your city probably on the edge for most of your life, but kind of falling off the cliff. Yes. And nobody caring. Well, the people who live here care. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, no I'm talking about the folks outside of Detroit. I'm yes, talking... yes, no, 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 yeah. I mean, but I just want to say that because yeah, it's important. think that the people who don't live here care, and they do care, and they have cared for, for a very long time. You know, we've had people who, you know, kept their homes, maintained their homes the best of their ability to stay and to this new, you know, well, it's really gentrification that's happening, but this rebuilding of Detroit, this Renaissance period. Um, some people have lost their homes. I mean, Detroit was one of the cities that was impacted the greatest from the um, subprime lending, right. um, predatory lending. Um, so a lot of people lost their homes, and a lot of those homes became abandoned, and then, you know, blight set in. And so you you have that that we're dealing with. Um, and then you do, you do, you have the disinvestment from the city. Back in the 70s when Coleman Young, you know, came into office and so we didn't have the resources and a lot of people started moving and then they, you know, then some of the policies began to change where residency was removed. So you didn't have to live in the city to work in the city. So money's going out of the city. So there are all these different things that are happening that led Detroit to be in the situation that it became to where we had to file bankruptcy. Um, and so now, you know, there's all these newcomers coming in trying to paint Detroit over, do this makeover as if it was a blank slate. And there have been people living here all along, you know, doing things to make their city great. It's just that we didn't have the resources, you know. And now, you know, the resources have opened up. And so everybody has their own theory as to why, <laughs> to why that is. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but that's the, the you know the situation that we're in now. But a lot of folks are you know still holding on and believing in Detroit, and in a strong comeback. We just needed to come back for the the residents as well, the people who've you know been here making a way out of no way for the last several decades. And you know you, there were two stories you've done, I guess, in the recently um, that kind of are interesting juxtapositions for me, in terms of how you look at Detroit. And how you look at that the 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 different ends of a struggle for for a better world, and for mm-hmm. racial justice and for economic justice. There's one story late last year, I think it was in December, about um, this the, the 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 Echo Village that's starting in Highland Park, Michigan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you had another story more recently, I think in April, about um, what it's like to live without water. Oh, the water story. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm going to talk about those two for a moment, those two stories, and because they both, they both have to do with um, a kind of energy systems. They both have to do with people's struggle for to, to have the right to 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 uh, to live. Right. And mm-hmm. but very different in terms right. of what these two struggles are about, just because of the nature of where they begin. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean. So, so this, so this, just some of the running water. That's happening in Baltimore too. I mean, the whole idea of water as a right. 
Right. And what happened to the people? And, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. No, but the UN declared that the water is is a human right. Right. Like we need water to survive. Um, and I just I don't even know where to start with that story because it's just it really every time I think about it it makes me want to cry. The um. Yeah. The woman that I interviewed for the story, you know, I had to go to her home and um, she has grandchildren there. So she has a family. And like, how do you not allow water, running water in a home where their children, um, she could lose her children. Like they, they, um, they can come in and remove the children from the home for not having water. Um, and she doesn't have water because she's low income and can't afford the water bill. You know, and then there are all kind of other issues around the hike in water rates and the prices, the, you know, the cost of the water bills. And, and it's just the bottom line is that a lot of people have lost their jobs. Detroit has one of the highest, um, if not the highest, unemployment rate in the state. Um, and the city's just not working with them in a way that helps. Um, there's, it's, it's, I mean, it, <laughs> ask me a specific question because I just get so. No, I hear you. I hear you. I, I, it, it, it is it's emotional when you when you go to the, the homes and you see the conditions and that it's like how do you not allow someone to have have water? It, it, when you describe in this in the, in the article, uh, literally water being delivered to the house, when you describe the like the amount of water that we use every day as human beings in the United States of America, um, the, the the 400 gallons a day I think you wrote that people use, and then you then people mm-hmm. have no water that you have to ship mm-hmm. water to people, you have to bring mm-hmm. water to people's homes. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you describe this family, and I think that it's just I mean it's out, it's outrageous. It is. It is outrageous, and we and we have groups. I mean, I think um, one of the groups that I mentioned in the article was "We the People of Detroit," yes. and they've been um, working with it. We have the People's Water Board, and there are several other groups. And then there, as I mentioned, two attorneys who are working um, to have a water affordability plan. And quite frankly, the city of Detroit approved one. The, the council did um, some years back, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but nothing was done with it, clearly, because we still have, you know, thousands of homes without water. Um, but we do have organizations that are still working on this affordability plan, trying to take it to not just the local and state level, but also the national level, um, to the through. Um, I think Conyers is the, uh, congressperson they're trying to have introduced the bill, but so that because Detroit is not the only city that's faced with this, we're not, you know, so they're trying to make it so that low income families, no matter what, will have access to to water. Uh, and so then you have the other <clears throat> example here in, in your stories, which I think is when I, I, I'm actually going to use this story as we're working on stuff here in Baltimore as well, um, because I think that it's really inspiring about what's happening in the city of, of, of Highland Park and Mama Shoe and what she's doing. Mm-hmm. That, because that, that's, that's what I mean. They're like two ends of the struggle. One is like people are really fighting to have, just to have the basic right to have water and pushing it right. hard. 
and then this other woman who's taking a hold to create a whole world that people can live in that's equitable. Right. And so, with, I mean, and part of that, too, with what Mama Shu is doing there, I just wanted to add on to what was happening with the water is that although, so the city can, and now we have an authority that's over the water board, right, and they control the water, we do have people in the community are stepping up, you know, bringing water and doing what they can in that regard, which is what Mama Shu is kind of doing on a, a larger scale in her community is saying that these are things that we can do, you know, for ourselves um, with the help of others, of course. I mean, because they have people do um, like in-kind work for the solar power lights and things like that. But it's community working together to say that, you know, to be self-determined, that we can um, do these things for ourselves. And I think overall that the example that she's setting in Highland Park is what folks, they're all different kind of community organizations doing similar type pro projects around the city of Detroit, whether it's um, urban gardening and farming, um, so around food uh, and food justice um, and water rights and things like that. I mean, you have a lot of developments happening in the city of Detroit like that because the citizens, the residents are seeing that we cannot just... Um, look to our government to provide these things for us. So, you, I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about you, so our listeners know a little bit about you. So, you, you, you've been a journalist for a while, right? How did you, uh, how, how did you get into journalism? Yeah, so, I, um, actually, both my background is mostly in academia, uh, media studies. Um, I started journalism at the Michigan Citizen newspaper, which is, or was, a community-based um, newspaper, Progressive, um, part of the um, Black Newspaper Publishers Association, so it was part of Black Press. Um, the Michigan Citizen closed in 2014, um, and I started there in 20, what, 2007. Um, and I was finishing my um, master's degree, actually, at Wayne State in um, Communicate Media Studies, and I started there kind of helping out, but I was writing, doing feature stories, and I started doing hard news because we had just um, received the an emergency manager, our first, at the time it was called an emergency financial manager right. in the schools, and my children were in the schools at that time. And I had a run-in with one of, with the emergency financial manager, Robert Bob, and um, I was asking him a question, because he had just come in, and I was asking as a parent, actually, because my children were in school. And he was very flippant, um, actually really kind of nasty in uh -huh. his response. And, and I was just offended. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I just couldn't believe it. So I got back to the office because I had run out. It was my lunch break. I had run out, and I ran into him at one of the schools. Got back to the office, and I was incensed. I was just like, I can't believe this guy. Who does he think he is? He's supposed to be working with us, not against us. And I, you know, and so the editor, the founding editor at the time, she said, um, Why don't you write something about it? 
And and I looked at her. She said, no, really, write something about it. And that's how I started covering our, our news. I mean, I just, because I couldn't, I was like, and, and I felt very fortunate to be in that position to do that because so many parents didn't understand what was going on. So I felt almost kind of like a liaison between, you know, to be able to explain you know, to be able to explain, like, this is what's really happening, you know, because so many parents didn't know. We thought, oh, this person is going to come in, he's going to write the books, and we're going to be good, and that's not what happened. I mean, we've lost control of our schools, basically. They're being dismantled. And so um, so that's how I started, you know, covering, like, the city beat and heart news and really before it was just mostly culture and art. Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And you know, over the years, we've done a lot <clears throat> with the Yes Magazine, talking to lots of folks who write for them. Uh, there's been a woman who's been writing for them for a year now. Uh, she is the associate editor for racial justice uh, for Yes Magazine, uh, Zenobia Jeffries. So one of the things you wrote here, we had a show about um, a number of them. Um, and I think it's really important to hear your perspective on this, given the way you covered it um, and your own experiences with looking at Detroit and Chicago. You wrote a piece uh, last February called The Black Community is Not Trump, Executive Orders Will End Carnage, and looking at what's happening in Detroit and Chicago and what people did. And, and people are doing the same thing here in Baltimore right now, where the mm-hmm. shooting and murder rate is just off the charts. Mm-hmm. And um, I talked to a dear friend before I saw this interview today who's, um, has, we, we started this phrase in Baltimore, I started this phrase in Baltimore, I guess about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, because of people who were doing some really serious work in the, in the community. And I said, there's nothing more powerful than a thug who turns to peace. Mm-hmm. And one of those brothers who I worked with was, he called me today and was talking about what's going on, these kids who are so terrified daily about just getting from home to school and back again. You know, they, 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 whether it's the gang on the corner with with these with weapons, or whether it's the guys in uniform and their gang, they don't know wh- what's going to happen to them. Right. So, so, talk a bit about what you discovered in in your work in thinking of this this notion about how communities take hold and what you've seen in Detroit and Chicago and what lessons you've learned. Right. So when I when I wrote that story, I spoke with um, two. Well, I spoke with Father Flager in Chicago and I was looking at the work that they're doing at St. Sabina and it's really kind of putting community back into you know it's like I think where the violence comes from is that people feel like they don't matter Right? And there's a recent story I just did too on the um, second chance for juveniles and, and that the person that I wrote about, Antonio S. Free, was an example of what could happen when you don't, when you feel like you don't matter and there aren't resources there for you in your community, things to keep you productive. So if you're not being, if you're not being constructive, you're not being productive, then you're being the opposite of that. You're being dis- destructive because what else is there for you to do? And so um, these things that the, they're doing at St. Sabina Church, I found, was very similar to some of the things that we had coming up, you know, in school, activities, something to keep children, young people um, 
not just busy, but productive. You know, they're using their mind to think. They're using their creativity and their gifts and their talent. Um, and what Father Flager was, I mean, and he was saying this too, it's like, we need the resources. We need the money. When you, when, when the crime happens because those resources aren't there, you know, when you start taking um, phys ed and art out of schools and the children, they, you know, they lose interest. When you start closing down parks and the children have nowhere to go and play, um, then, you know, they just turn out, the streets can get them easily. And so I found that the same thing here in Detroit, except that the group that I spoke with in Detroit was this organization called Mothers of Murdered Children. And I think in Sabina, they have a similar group, too, that I didn't get to speak to that person directly. Yeah, they have one in Baltimore, too. Yeah. Okay. And the Mothers of Murdered Children, um, the woman who founded that group, Andrea Clark, her son was killed um, at a at a party or something somewhere and most majority and the women who are part of this organization there you know there's um sons daughters were killed um violence in the city or by police officers um and they're coming together but what what she's done now is that they're actually working with the police because detroit because of the loss of money a lot of the cold cases just remain that they didn't have a department anymore within um or a unit rather within the department to go over these to deal with these cold quake cases so they just sat there well now her organization is working with dpd um and the family to um solve these cases and they took on 10 of them and were able to um they had success through those and as they close some cases, you know, then they move on to the next one, but they're hundreds. And the whole point of it was that communities want to be self-determining. Like, they want to do these things for themselves. Everybody is not looking, you know, for a handout, but we all need resources. And unfortunately, in a lot of the urban centers where people have moved out to the suburbs and you have a higher tax base, that's not the case here. And so we know if there's money to invest in military and wars and things like that, there's money to invest back into our schools and to our rec departments and to things to help communities thrive like they do in other areas. So that was the whole point of that. It was, um, you know, the, your executive orders that are that you're putting down to police more heavily, you know, these Baltimore and Detroit and Philadelphia and a lot of these other communities, Oakland, they're, um, they're already being policed heavily, you know, so executive orders to protect those officers who already are not being held accountable are not going to help. And, you know, those are not the things that we need. What we need is our, are the resources. So I, and the father Flager, you know, he articulated that well, I thought. So just to conclude, I, I want to I come back to where we began, uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to, 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 to the, the piece you wrote about, about Philando Castile. Um, mm-hmm. And we've seen since then, of course, all these other cases of uh, police officers getting off for killing black people that, that just seem to tumble one after the other over a period of two weeks. 
um, across the country. And so I'm wondering how, when you look at this and look across the country, how you feel about the state of the movement, the state of the, of the, of the fight against racism, the fight against, uh, the fight for a, a world that's more socially just. And we all have our good days and bad days with this. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Right? And that's what I was going to go back to. Like, some <laughs> days I feel like, you know, forget it, you know. But I think, but then I look back, you know, and that's why I always try to remember the names of those who came before us, like the Fannie Lou Hamers. Right. Um, and those social activists, those freedom fighters. You know, they didn't give up. Had they given up, we wouldn't be where we are now. You know, and so sometimes I think, well, so-and-so said this already. I don't need to say that. You know, it's repetitive or it's whatever or who's going to listen to me or nobody cares. But then I always remember if they felt, if they thought like that, if they didn't get up and write, if they didn't get up and speak or they didn't get up and march or, you know, call out for justice then we wouldn't be where we are now and some people say we haven't gotten that far um you know and you know, in some ways maybe not in others we have um but i think that we don't stop you know we definitely can't stop and i love the tenacity of the black lives matter um movement i love that they moved from okay we're in the street we're marching but that's not the end all be all we can't do, do that only and they came up with the movement for black lives matter plat- policy platform and so these are things that can be instituted into our policies to make these changes so we're not just shouting on the street you know black lives matter care about us but these are things you can do to show that our lives matter and that you can care about us and so something that's tangible and i think when we start to move in that direction when Um, people start to sit on these juries now and question, you know, and really not just, you know, take for, you know, because I think I would just say human beings in general, like we respect authority, you know, something is coming from, I mean, we are socialized to be that way from our parents on, you don't question, right? And so if it's coming from an officer, if it's coming from the courts, if it's coming from somebody who has an authoritative position over us, we don't question it. But I think now is the time to start doing that, particularly when we have the administration that we have now in the mm. White House. You know, you have to start to question those things and look at what works for everybody. You know, not just for you and your comfortable corner of the your city, you know, or of the country, but what what is working for everybody else? Because if it's happening over here, then eventually it'll begin to happen elsewhere. I mean, for instance, the water story. You know. In a few short years, I think it was five, a third of the um, residents in this country, a third of the citizens will be without, won't be able to afford their water. Right. You know, so, I mean, it's like it may be happening in Detroit, but, you know, the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. It may be happening, you know, in Baltimore and just these black urban centers, but, you know, it's moving. It's in these rural areas, too. And I think, we, you know, we need to be out more and be more vocal about the fact that our struggles are very much similar, you know, and the only difference is the hue of our skin tone, <laughs> but our, our struggles are very much similar. And I think we have to stop letting, when I say the system, and that's what it is, divide us, 
you know, and say, oh, it's just black people with this problem. You know, you know, that that's when I say you're being lied to because, yeah, you know, white people commit crimes too. They're just not being demonized. You know, they're not, their stories aren't being told. You don't hear about it as much. And so start questioning that, you know, and not to start to demonize white people, but to say, this is what everybody does. We need to try to prevent crime in all these areas, you know, or mm-hmm. we need to, um, but to see everybody as human beings, not as um, because you're black, you know, you're bad. You know, black people commit more crimes. Like, no, look at these numbers, really, and start to question those things. So I, I think that moving in, you know, where it seems like things are getting worse is a time when it's really not. It's the time for us to step up. That's you know, when it's in that time is now, you know, to start to question, to start to call your um, legislative folks, to start to go into these sessions and in your council meetings and, and question them, to not just sit back and be dormant. And then, you know, when it comes to you, it's like, how did this happen? You know, because you allowed it to happen to other people. So I think we're all responsible. Um, I guess today is a hopeful day, <laughs> the way that I found. <laughs> But but I do I do when I sit and I think about it I don't I don't feel like all hope is gone because like I said we've gotten to this point now, right where I can talk to you right now and have this interview and then later so many people will hear it and maybe that'll change the direction of what they're thinking or you know what I mean so it right. it matters even if it's just impact one person that one person can impact another person so I think um, that when we see the videos of um, Eric Garner and Philando Castile and Mike Brett. You know, when we see all those things, <clears throat> we do, um, we fall in this state of depression and hopelessness, but we can't lose hope. And we have to know, too, that we do have allies um, in all, excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> it's all right. In all ethnicities, you know, and we can't. Um, so, my white people, and even the um, Stop Protecting Hateful White Men, wasn't to demonize white people, but it's to say enough of the status quo. This is what's been happening, and this is why we are where we are now, because you all aren't standing up in numbers. Well, one thing I know is Zenobia. Uh, that's Nobia Jeffries is standing up, and your writing stands up. And uh, we appreciate you here on the Mark Steiner Show and look forward to you coming back many times. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate you.